The opinions and views expressed in this video are purely for entertainment purposes and not for investment advice. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jack of All Trades podcast, where we talk about all things finance, trading, and investing related. David won't be joining us today because he got called in for last minute work, but today we have a very special guest. He is the pop sequen sequentialism author and Gallery 30 South owner, Matt Kennedy. Welcome. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So my friend wanted me to ask this question um, just to start off the podcast. Are you related to the Kennedys? Ooh, starting off with the tough questions. Uh, there, there is a familial relation, yes. There's another, another president that we're supposedly related to as well. I thought it was going to be William McKinley, and it turns out to be Grover Cleveland. So uh, two presidents somewhere in my bloodline. That's very impressive. It's bizarre. Uh, <laughs> so, well, to get to uh, more uh, serious matters, uh, I really wanted to, because how we first met was just, I just messaged you out of the blue uh, after, right after the Heritage uh, auction, where mm -hmm. I saw the winning bid, uh, where you got the winning bid, and I just reached out to you, and right away you said you would be totally cool with uh, coming on our podcast. Sure. And so uh, I was curious, like, what was it that started you, like, for your love of art, and what got you into collecting? Oh wow! I'll try to do the capsule version of this, yeah. but um, you know, I started really, really young. I I, I used to like to draw. I had a, a certain gift for it. And, um, you know, I was drawn to things that would help me expand on my illustration skills. So comics, cartoons, um, you know, um, to an extent, you know, literally illustration. Um, but I hit a point, you know, as I started to get older, where I just recognized that I didn't have the discipline to really pursue it. Now, I, I can draw pretty well. I can paint okay. I can do sculpture. I, I'm, I'm a pretty well-rounded individual when it comes to artistic practice. I've always been able to recognize when there's someone who's really good at something. And the way I looked at it, and I've, I've been, I guess, blessed in a way that I recognize this young, so that I didn't waste a lot of time, um, that I could pay somebody to do what I can't do. I could pay them less than I would pay myself. It's sort of like, and this is as a child, it's very different now as an adult. But um, knowing like other kids who could draw stuff, I'd be, if I saw a kid who had drawn something really well, I'd be like, hey, I'll give you a quarter for that. I'll give you 50 cents for that. You know, and in kid money in 1975, that was, you know, two bags of chips, a couple of milks and maybe a candy bar. And at the very least, it was, you know, it was almost three packs of Star Wars cards. So um, in, in child economy, and that's what I was, I was kind of working with. Was you know what what does it cost me to have something that that will give me a level of enjoyment? And I would sometimes other kids would offer me more for the thing that I just purchased because they didn't even understand that this thing was for sale. And you know I would also I would do like little commission illustrations as a kid in elementary school, uh, drawing classmates and teachers um, mostly inappropriately, and getting like you know a dime or twenty cents for a little sketch. And I got in trouble. And uh, the principal called my mother, and she had to go to the principal's office, and I'm sitting there, and I was in trouble for drawing something, which I thought was absolutely absurd. And luckily, when my mom got in and sat down, now, 
the principal in my elementary school was a guy named Mr. Cole, and he was seven foot two. Um, I'm still like barely five six. So as a little kid, I was a really really tiny kid. So it was kind of like looking at Godzilla or something. And so my mom comes in. She's not that tall either. And she walks in, and Mr. Cole slides this drawing of like a naked teacher, you know, in in front of uh, my mom, and and she looks down at it, and and she's like, Matthew drew this, and he's like, yes, and she was like, my Matthew did this, and he's like, yes, it's like, well, that's pretty good, you know, and so like I realized I wasn't in trouble. The principal was really miffed. He was kind of like like almost didn't know what to say, like. Why doesn't she understand that it's really inappropriate for this six-year-old kid to be drawing naked adults? Um, and that came out of uh, first, like, tracing uh, illustrations of classic Greco-Roman art, so, like, Greek gods, um, you know, Greek goddesses. And I was getting my, my kind of skill down by tracing on tracing paper these images out of the encyclopedias that my parents had, which was a Collier's set. And um, it was really, really great to have that as a kid, as a resource, like a, um, really a kind of library at home because encyclopedias then it was like 26 volumes or something. And um, that kind of kicked off my interest really in just really pursuing illustration and enjoying it, but also enjoying the labors of other people who I could recognize were better at it than I was. And so when you, when you understand that, then it kind of opens up the world to possibilities and you realize that can buy things, you know, that they're not always expensive, that all economy is relative, that, you know, what something costs is relative to what you can afford, which is relative to what you have to do without in order to have it. And so as, you know, I was always a kid who, you know, I, I had an allowance for doing chores and they were not, it, not easy chores. We had a very large yard and I was raking leaves and shoveling snow in the whole nine yards and, and didn't get paid a lot for it, but it encouraged me to go and get other jobs. I had paper routes. I had lobster traps as a kid, which mean, meant that I had deeded property that I could farm, you know, I could go and catch lobster in. And it was a buoy and a flag with a number on it. And if you found somebody messing with your traps, it was legal in Massachusetts, at least as, as far as like, say, 1980, and probably still is today, you could kill somebody for messing with your traps. So there's that other kind of like weird angle of entrepreneurship that relates to that a business is a livelihood. Know, and as the youngest of six kids um, in a family where my dad worked for the post office and my mom was a baker, that um, you know we didn't have a ton of resource, but we had some. You know, like we weren't poor, we were not well off. There was, I think, a perception that perhaps we were doing better than we were because um, of a kind of insistence that you know we be presentable and, and look well, and we all spoke well and, and did well in school. So um, it was a kind of real kind of training process and I took that with me my entire life you know through the various things I collected baseball cards comic books you name it and um and I always had an eye towards maybe luck like maybe it was just an ability that developed somehow that I paid attention as a little kid in the pre-internet world to first appearances and to key appearances in comics and that became a big motivator of what I would save versus what I would collect and read sometimes so, you know, I, I had probably slightly more sophisticated taste than the other kids my age and was, you know, certainly reading the Alan Moore stuff um, much more than I would be reading any superhero comics at the time, uh, which kind of made me to a degree a little bit of like a comic book snob as a little kid. But um, Steve Bissett, who was illustrating Swamp Thing, 
in that era lived in Vermont and his wife was from my hometown of Lynn, Massachusetts. So, um, you know, growing up in Salem, you know, where they had hung witches, you know, a few hundred years before, there's a kind of celebration of the Gothic and um, a kind of interest in darker themes. And that was the stuff that I got into because my birthday was two weeks before Halloween. And I could, you know, Pavlovian, it's like, oh, I see the pumpkins on people's windows. My birthday's coming up, you know, and so you celebrate that, um, that reward, you know, with a certain time of season. So I always felt bad for kids whose birthdays were near you know, uh, Christmas because it was kind of like, are they going to get less gifts? You know, like, how does that work out? But um, it, it gave me a real fascination and it gave me something to collect because I liked Halloween so much. I started collecting mostly horror related stuff for a long time and amassed an amazing collection of things. Uh, I had every single published um, Bernie Wrightson um, illustration in its original incarnation at one point. Um, you know, and that's like, and when you get everything and you, you're able to kind of like slide that off your ledger, it's like, what do I collect next? You know, or you're like, I'm done, I'm done collecting. And then, you know, something pulls you back in. You're like, oh, you know, it's like the Godfather. I thought I was out. But um, it's been very motivational, but other collectors have also been very, very motivational. And watching what other people collect and why they like it, I would start keeping an eye open like, oh, my friend collects that. I'll see if I can find something like that. In the 90s, I started going back and forth to Japan a lot. So that gave me access to a whole bunch of stuff that very few other people had access to. So and when you went to Japan for the first time, was that when you figured out the animation artwork or was that previous? I'm trying to think. Um, I purchased any animation art before I went to Japan. I'd certainly seen it. Um, but this you're talking like 1995. So I had seen Kira in the theater probably in like 1991 when it finally played in Los Angeles theatrically. So right when I was brand new in Los Angeles. And they had like, cells in the lobby, like on the wall, like real cells. And if you bought tickets, you got a cell. You didn't get to pick it. They just Amazing. One. It was a really, really great promotion. And so Streamline Pictures did that for Akira. They did it for Robot mm -hmm. Carnival. And I think they did it for a couple of other uh, things that they released. But I do specifically remember it for Akira and for Robot Carnival. Now, I didn't buy a ticket. Like, I knew a person who worked at the movie theater, so I didn't get the free cell. I just got, you know, free admission and bought a cell, I guess. But the, um, years later, I remembered, you know, meeting the people that were part of Streamline. When they closed their office right around 2000, um, my, my ex-wife was at the time working for a place called Bonsai Anime, uh, in West LA. It was a great shop, very dedicated exclusively to, to anime. It was like a video rental store that also had soundtracks and they would sell players that could play, you know, any DVD at the time. And, um, and someone came in and they were like, Hey, I've got, um, some animation cells that I want to sell. And so the owner was in a hurry and he was like, no, nah, I'm not interested. And he, and he like, like headed out the door as he was doing something. So my ex-wife was like, well, what do you have? And looked and she immediately called me up and she's like, get over here now, bring $300. And so I went and I got like a kind of collector's kit. I mean, it was ridiculous. It was a binder that was full of dozens of key setup Akira cells. 
Um, lots of, you know, hero cells of uh, Kaneda and Tetsuo. But, like, all the box art cells for um, videotapes for um, Robot Carnival. And then there was, like, Dirty Pair stuff. And there was, like, there was even a couple of cells from Cream Lemon, you know, which are, like, these kind of pornographic uh, cells. But that, um, that type of hentai is created with that specific episode of Cream Lemon called Pop Chaser, and that became Project Echo. So um, even just in, like, this sort of starter kit really opened my eyes to the best of, of animation that was happening that wasn't Studio Ghibli. And I had seen Warriors of the Wind, which is what Nausicaa was called, its initial theatrical release in the U.S. and Canada, I think in 1984. And, you know, I had seen... I loved animated films, and sometimes... You weren't really sure as a kid that something animated completely in Japan, like The Last Unicorn, didn't know that it was Japanese animation. It was an American release. And a lot of the TV animation at the time was obviously being sent overseas and being done. You didn't get the idea that this was anime. You just thought of it as animation. And those distinctions, when, when they became uh, more realized, I guess, or more pronounced, also helped me to kind of like shape what I was going to collect. And I really navigated not towards necessarily American uh, animated projects that were worked on by Japanese animation facilities, but for Japanese, Japanese stuff. And I, I would end up releasing Japanese films. I had a, a, a company called Panic House that released the Pinky Violence films from Toei um, along with other Asian cinema. So I sort of had carved my niche, and I had found that a lot of the culture that I really, really loved was this Japanese pop culture and the Japanese pop culture interest in American pop culture. So it was a really kind of... That helped to really help me navigate what it was that I was interested in, what I was going to collect. But I really got lucky. Like, that first collection of stuff is a miracle collection. Number one, I'm, I can't believe the guy only wanted 300 bucks. And at that point, you're kind of wondering, it's like, was this a guy that just got fired and just grabbed, you know, something off the desk? But I, I did find out that they were closing it down. And the reason that all this good stuff was there is because that was the stuff that they didn't want to give away. They were giving away sales with tickets. So like, this is too good. We can't give this to people. And so I, I just got lucky by being the guy, at the right guy at the right time and being able to get it. And then I yeah. became friends with other people through that shop, Bonsai Anime, guys like Rick. You know, from Anime Link, I've known Rick Alonzo for a long time at this point. I mean, like, he's the guy that had the exclusive rights to every Vampire G-Cell, you know. Um, he also made deals um, for lots of really key Studio Ghibli stuff, you know. And in my probably second or third trip to Japan, um, I had asked him, you know, where, where should I go to buy stuff? Because I wasn't buying what he was selling, and so he didn't have a problem sharing information with me about where I might want to find what I want and he didn't want the hassle of like figuring out which one I would want so I just go to this place and you know wrote down some addresses and so when I was in Tokyo I would hit like all the Mandarakes you know and, and I mean Mandarake is like for those who don't know it's a, um, a collector shop in Japan but each shop has its own specialty so there's several Mandarakes that are dedicated to anime but there's like a Mandaraki that's dedicated only to cosplay, so that you can buy uniforms. There's one that's dedicated just to Japanese manga, 
pre-1970. There's one that's dedicated only to manga post-1970. And then there's like just uh, movie posters, just Japanese movie posters, just American movie posters, like all these specialty things. And I was already kind of a major poster collector and that informed a lot of my purchases on those early trips. But I was buying toys and I was buying just like cool stuff. I bought a lot of clothes that don't fit me anymore. Um, you know, I guess I'm lucky that this Tekken Concrete shirt still fits because um, it was from a, a, there was a, it was a pop-up shop and it was called Black and White. It wasn't called Tekken Concrete. And everything there was only available at that store for one week. And I was just luck of the draw. I was in Japan yeah. at that time. And so I, I bought a t-shirt. I should have bought 10. So just if we can backtrack for one second, because I understand that a lot of people, at least here in the Western world, don't really know what an animation cell is. And seeing how this is an investment show, just to sort of highlight, you know, what exactly that is. And then if there's an investment opportunity there. Sure. Um, and maybe you guys want to pop up some of the images I sent over. But basically, yeah, an animation cell is a piece of um, celluloid, you know, like a clear acrylic type sheet that um, has painted on the underside of it, in reverse, um, an image that is one image of many that, when put in motion, forms an animated sequence or a cartoon. So it's the actual artwork that you see when you watch a cartoon. But anime artwork isn't just the animation cell that's painted with a type of cell vinyl onto that sheet. It's also the drawings that basically are a skeleton of the entire project, whether it's a TV series or a movie or an OVA, an original video animation, they're drawn out first. And even now, when a lot of animation is done completely digitally, those drawings that are underneath the cell, which in Japan are called dogas, are, um, are hand-drawn. So like a great example of that era changing, just like in the U.S., Beauty and the Beast was that first Disney movie that combined traditional animation with three-dimensional, you know, 3D animation effects that made it such a huge step forward in animation. Um, they hadn't quite done that yet in Japan. They were so good at traditional animation that it was already at a higher level probably than even Disney. Even Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli spirited away. That film, artwork is only the drawings, and some Hankin cells, which are, a Hankin cell is a cell that is drawn specifically for publicity purposes. It's not part of the motion animation of the film. All the animation stuff was digital. So there are no real animation cells for Spirited Away the way, the way there were for Kiki's Delivery Service, for Princess Mononoke, you know, for any of those earlier films. And so it's becoming a rarity because so few companies produce animation cells anymore so when you get to be like my age and, and certainly guys your age you start thinking back to the nostalgia of your youth and it's like i have a good job now oh man i always wanted to have this thing i wonder if i can have that thing whether it's a comic book or a pokemon card or you know um a you know a ricky henderson rookie card or whatever you, you may reflect your era it's there, and I think that people are now, for the first time, on a grand scale, understanding that animation art is something that they can they can actually purchase and they can enjoy. And, and some people like to keep their stuff in books. Some people are very against framing work. I'm not against framing work, but situation that you have to have 
to be able to frame it and keep it safe so that it doesn't degrade by keeping it away from light and keeping the temperatures fairly consistent is more, I think, than a lot of people are willing to commit to. And so they might pay a fortune for something. Like in that last Heritage auction, there were Studio Ghibli cells that were in the sixty dollars to $80,000 range. Akira cells were in that range. And it's it would be a sin to me if they take that cell that they paid sixty to $80,000 for, take it to a local framer who doesn't know how to frame animation work, then they hang it like, the doorway right in front of their door where the sun beats it every day because it's going to be ruined. And that's something that we're going to see, you know, that what if you're looking to invest in animation, invest in it knowing that a lot of the really good stuff is going to be bought by people who are going to not treat it well and it's going to be destroyed, which is going to make other key sequences even more valuable, even more rare. So um, to kind of avoid the hazards of collecting a type of work that degrades, you can shift away from collecting cells and just collect the drawings. You can just collect, you know, production drawings like, um, you know, Genga, which are like a lead animator's drawing of something and he'll set up the scene and he'll hand it off to the lead animators and they'll use that scene to produce the sequence knowing that it starts here and it goes someplace else. And sometimes there are hundreds, sometimes there are thousands of Gengas, sometimes there's only dozens. Um, so it, it really depends on how actively a lead animator is handing off the work and what era the animation is from, because that has changed over time. So in terms of the sequences, because you were just talking about that, like let's say you get a cell that's like an A5. And what I really like about cell collecting is like it really is like one of one versus buying some sort of Pokemon card that's a PSA 9 and there's like 4,000 of them. But how do you know that there's not other cells that are very similar to yours? Almost there are There are cells that are very similar to mine. You know, that's the thing is that on a, a show like Akira, you know, there might have been 12 cells per scene. There might have been more. You know, there's 24 frames in traditional NTSC video, uh, which is the same as a one-to-one a -one frame per ratio for film. So when film goes through a projector, 24 frames go through that film for every one second. So you don't need to animate every second. It's faster than the eye can catch. And a lot of animation is really doing maybe like four frames as opposed to, um, I would say four to, four to 10, four to 12 ratio. So maybe like eight frames per second. Some were doing 10 and 12, really good ones, 12. Um, I don't know of too many instances there's more than, than 12 cells um, per second. That gives you a lot, of, a lot of possibilities. Where that changes into being abundant into scarcity is the fact that for years, many places would clean their cells after the, after the animation was done. They didn't keep them. They would clean them off. Here you go, recycled cell, paint something else on it. So the drawings would become a little bit more abundant. Mm. They were less likely of, I mean, they're not going to get recycled in the same way, but certainly a lot of it got thrown away. Um, in the 90s, I was called by a friend who had um, access to Hanna-Barbera removing. Hanna-Barbera and Cahuenga, right near the Barham overpass, which takes you straight into Burbank from Hollywood. And they were moving their offices or they were selling, you know, portions of something. They were just basically throwing stack, like entire, like, 
um, file lockers full of cells were just getting dumped into a dumpster, thrown away. And so someone had rescued a bunch of these and were like, oh, these have got to be worth something. I think they were probably expecting like a nickel or 10 cents a piece, and, which would have been a great deal. When I got there and saw them, they had rescued them and then they had stuck them in their garage. In the garage, it was like a totally hot summer. And they got, it was a brick of cells at that point. Like you couldn't separate them. Um, for whatever reason, there might have been sheets in between the cells at a certain point, and they had been taken out. It's possible that they were taken out before they were thrown in the trash and somebody wanted the drawings. Um, but these were just cell on cell on cell on cell. So the back end, which is where it's painted, is sticking to the front, the cell and back of it, all the way across maybe a thousand cells. It should be about this, you know, this much space. And I went and looked at it, and I was just like, oh, I'm like, these are ruined. Like, these, are, these cannot be salvaged. These are, these are garbage. And I was like, oh, I don't know what happened. You know, when I, when I pulled them out of the trash, they were fine. I'm like, well, you stuck them in a, a room that gets 130 degrees, you know, on a daily basis. And so that, that degradability of the medium makes them valuable when they're in good condition and they're preserved and they're treated well. So, like... You know, in this auction that's at Heritage right now, there's stuff from Snow White. I mean, that's the first feature-length animated movie. We're talking the 1930s. Um, and there's still pieces around that are in relatively decent condition. Um, for me, um, I've started to actually transition a little bit out of collecting cells, per se, and I'm looking more for um, production drawings, production paintings, that type of thing. Um, even like a Hankin cell, which is still a painting done on, on a cell for um, advertisement purposes, I think they get treated better than production cells, so it's easier to keep them in good condition in a weird way. Again, if someone frames it and sticks it in a hall where sunlight hits it, it's going to get wrecked. But um, I've found myself steering towards those. They're better scenes because they usually are meant to represent the whole movie. They're not part of telling a story. So you can have an impossible thing where two characters that don't share screen time are on this image, which is almost like a movie poster type image. Uh, they're very high demand. I have a great Sailor Moon uh, Hank and Cell, which is actually for a Kamishi buy. So Kamishi buy is like a storybook. It's sort of like a um, Fisher-Price like CNSA toys where you pull a string. It's like, this is the cow, goes moo. And you pull a string or you push a button, it would go moo. Well, the, the Kamishibai are sort of like storytelling, speaking comic books for smaller kids. Um, they're usually like really thick, that type of material that you could like spill cereal on it, just wipe it right off and it's not going to injure it. Um, you worry more about the electronics at that point. So this was the cover to the very first Sailor Moon Kamishibai and it's a full cast, beautiful cell. And when um, I went to Heritage after this last auction, I'm like, I've got this other stuff. Um, is this something you'd be interested in? Knowing that they would be. And they were very, very excited about that Sailor Moon. They, of course, wanted another Akira because it's the same sequence as the record-setting piece that sold last month. Yeah, it can we talk about that one? And maybe uh, Sammy can uh, put that on the screen because how much did that Akira sell, sell for? 100000 No, no, it wasn't that much, but it was seventy-eight dollars or $79,000 plus oh, buyer's so premium. We're, we're talking USD here, too. Yeah. yeah, so 100,000 Canadian essentially. In Canadian, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in, in US dollars, yeah, the, the buyer's premium is all is 20% on top of 
sale price. So or eighteen percent, I think. So like it wound up being like eighty three, eighty four thousand dollars. Um and Sammy, can so, you zoom like, in on that a little bit? Yeah, I'm getting a little closer. So the one that I provided you guys um, in that set of three um, is a different shot than the one that sold, but it's in the same sequence. I think the one that sold is a little bit better because you get a little bit more of Canada's face. Yeah, he's still going like, a little bit more. Yeah, but now that that price has been established on those, yeah, this second piece is probably that valuable. If not anything. more now because they set the market, right? Right, so... If you were to have one that was even closer to that other shot, that's now a hundred thousand dollars USD, you know, which places it where like one thirty Canadian. Um, so yeah, you're you're these types of record-setting prices haven't stopped, you know, since the pandemic. I and I've I also write about comic book investments and I write about graded comics and what where to look, where to put your money. I write for Go Collect and. Um, a lot of people are like, oh, this is this bubble's gonna pop. And I'm like, what evidence is there that this is a bubble? Because prices are constantly going up, and there's a new engine for why they're going up. In comics, it's because there's new Marvel projects every two months now that get people excited about the source material. There's a new movie now every six months, now that we're out of the pandemic, hopefully. Um, and so there's a machine that makes people more interested. We're making more fans. It's not like the fan base is dropping off and going away and you can point to the fact that circulation numbers are low and I'm like, well, yeah, that's that's a good thing. That actually establishes value for what's coming out now, 10 and 20 years. Because a lot of the stories that are being told, like the Gore the God Butcher is gonna be the villain of the next Thor movie. This is a new character. He's only been around for like seven, eight years. So you're having a modern influence come in and it's going to continue to come in. With older stuff, it's just getting rarer. So with animation and production art that is being discarded, that is going bad in private collections, that um, is sticking together, like even people that do a good jo job of storing things, there have been, what, 10 major fires in California? Some of those people collected animation cells. Their houses went up in flames. Amazing collections went with it. Like, I know some of the, the bigger collectors of cells that don't hit the market. I have access to some of that stuff occasionally, and people contact me, and they'll be like, hey, I'm looking for this. I'm like, well, you got to let me know what your budget is, and you can't be lying to me. Like, what are you willing to pay? Because I'm not going to go ask this person who doesn't have a posted price you know, how much they want for something, because the answer is it's not for sale. But if you say, I've got somebody, and they're willing to pay $60,000 for this particular thing, is this for sale, they might go, yeah, I'll sell that. You know, and it's like it's it's hard if it's not like a lot of collectors don't understand that nuance. To get the really good yeah. stuff, you have to have access. It's like a Gaussian gallery, right? You know, it's like you can't just walk in and buy, you know, a a Damien Hurst, you know, from Gagosian. It's like you have to be on a list. They're gonna ask you, so what else you got in your collection? Like qualifying my money? It's like, yes, we're qualifying your money. We want these pieces to go into collections next to Basquiat, next to Picasso, next to the big blue chip stuff. We don't want this to be the nicest piece in your collection. You know, like That's the kind of mentality. And with collectors who have great stuff, they're letting out key pieces because they have better pieces. But it, they're only letting go if, it's, you know, if the price is right. They've had it this long, they'll, they'll continue to keep it. 
It's not what motivates them to keep or sell. They have means and they've, they've got good stuff. And, you know, the fires were just heartbreaking because as I saw certain neighborhoods get ravaged on TV, I'm like, oh my God, I know so-and-so lives out there. And I know that they're not there now because in the pandemic, you had to kind of isolate where you were. And, you know, some people decided, hey, it's getting pretty nutty. In, in the U.S., I'm going to go someplace else or, you know, I'm going to go to a different place in the U.S. where it's a little easier to live a life. And so they weren't even around to be able to protect their stuff. And sure, there's insurance, but as you know, when you're talking in antiquities and valuables and collectibles, when they're gone, it's an almost unnameable loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's what, what I was going to ask you actually determine the value of these things like you know say you're going out and you're looking at something to buy you know you're saying some of these are going 40 50 60 70 thousand dollars you know if you're, if you're looking at a piece and someone's saying you know i want forty thousand dollars for this how do you I, I know a lot of that must come with experience but just i'm just interested to see how you kind of value these things as you're looking at them there's two ways i mean there's the general value of a thing like you can say dragon ball z dragon ball z stuff got valuable so even the least desirable Dragon Ball stuff is worth 10 times what it was probably five years ago. I bought a Vegeta um, Super Saiyan cell from a fellow collector uh, through Facebook, actually. Um, I knew his collection. I had mutual people that know each other, but we didn't know each other directly. And I liked the cell, and he had some other stuff, and I bought that and a few other things from him. Um, there was a sheet of so that. Luckily, the cell was separated from the doga. They were they were not stuck together. But he had used a kind of piece of not quite onion skin, but it's this kind of animation um, acid-free paper that people sometimes use. But it still managed to stick the back of the animation. Now, the great thing about cells is if whatever stuck to the back doesn't bleed through to the front, that's fine. No one sees the back of the cell. No one cares. And honestly, if you can see that something is stuck to it, you can look where the um, where the paint is. It gives you a better idea of um, the style that was used to paint. So you can spot fakes because people do make fake animation cells. They're usually very easy to spot if you have any kind of experience looking at them. But the, um, it also helps to reinforce it so that there's actually still a little bit of air around there. It helps to stop vinegar syndrome when that happens. Um, and then I found, I, I kept this cell for maybe a year. I sold it for about 10 times what I had paid for it. That's in one year. I identified that, oh my God, this is the first time that this, this character goes super science. So I had a certain amount of familiarity. Oh, that was the first time that he went super Saiyan ever. Vegeta went super science. Hey, that is amazing. Because yeah. I actually just got my first uh, big boy cell about a month ago. I got a trunk cell. It was a very iconic scene when he's fighting Android 18. And mm-hmm. it's like um, like his face. He's Super Saiyan. It's like the first time that he goes Super Saiyan. And um, um, it's just crazy that um, it was just very nostalgic for me that I was able to own a piece of history. I was able to buy sort of a piece of my childhood. And uh, it's crazy because when you buy your first cell... You just want to buy the second and the third. And um, I'm still not sure how I value it. Is it um, a piece of fine art? Is it a collectible? But the prices just keep going higher every time there's an auction and someone already offered me to 
uh, you know, almost double what I paid for it too. Cause most people, you tell them about animation artwork and they don't know what it is. It's like you're opening up sort of um, a completely new world for them. They go down that rabbit hole. And uh, I really like the supply and demand metrics because the supply of these things, as you're saying, they get lost, they get stolen, they get destroyed, the heat, the sun, um, and more people are discovering it and more people are older. They have the um, discretionary income to buy these um, animated art pieces. So I think that as an investment, the supply and demand is just working out for it great. And uh, that's why we were so excited to get you on the show, just because we want to um, introduce people to this really cool uh, alternative investment class. And there's, like I said, there's, there's a, so many different things you can collect in animation, just in animation, um, that are anime related. And so I think as collectors become more sophisticated about what it is that they want, then they'll start to kind of specialize or they'll start to become more versatile. And, they, you know, my collection was really, in a way, informed by my love of process. So I wanted to have a great Hankin. I wanted to have a great master setup. I wanted to have timesheets. I wanted to have, you know, great dogas, um, you know, gangas, uh, illustrations, like personal illustrations by the creators. I've got a little bit of everything, just like in comics, right? So like comic book production is really interesting. If you look at comics from the 1970s, those word balloons are hand-drawn and cut by the letterer who sticks them onto the page with glue. And then, like, at a certain point when lettering became digital, probably in the aughts, you see the original art page, it doesn't have any of the text on it. And to an extent, since so much of the enjoyment of the comic reading is what was written on the page, that can be very, very pivotal and important to why a certain page is worth money. So in the specifications of, like, why this and not that, it does require a certain, about, a certain amount of information and expertise to really benefit. But even with just like a cursory amount of info, you don't have to know everything if your thing is Dragon Ball. You don't have to know everything if your thing is Sailor Moon. You just have to know what you like and what you want and then get out there and look. And a lot of people organize stuff by episode. Um, I mean, that's really but specific. where do they look? If there's someone that identified something that they want to buy, they want to buy a Dragon Ball Z or Sailor Moon piece of artwork, where is the best spot for them to look? Um, it's, you know, it's pretty difficult when you're just navigating this uh, um, sort of sector of art investing. Do you go to eBay? Do you try to find people on Facebook? Is there an, uh, some other option? All the above and more. Um, I think that the best place for me is Japan. That there are so many shops, there are specialty shops that just sell animation cells. Um, not everybody can do that, and certainly right now, almost nobody can do that. But there are, you know, it, conventions are the next big step. Like conventions, there are people that don't, that no longer have brick and mortar stores, but they hit a certain convention circuit. So that maybe they'll do San Diego Comic Con, maybe they do WonderCon, maybe they do, you know, Anime Expo, maybe they do New York City Comic Con, maybe they do a different show. And it's like, I would say, be aware of shows that are in your local area and go to them you know and then you get to kind of flip through and look and they're usually organized by by book by series and sometimes by series and year depending upon how much material a single you know seller has but then you get to look and you can also you know in those books 
there's probably not going to be all the A-list cells. So you ask, it's like, hey, if, if, if you're into um, familiar of zero and you want, you know, something really nice, you can ask, hey, what do you got familiar of zero? If, if your thing is devil man lady, you know, and you want like devil man lady stuff, you can ask what's available. Um, those might be bad examples because I'm not entirely sure that those are traditionally animated. But if you go back, if you're a Ghibli collector, that world's getting smaller because all of those shops that had great Ghibli cells have to, at this point, be thinking, I need to go to auction. Um, I do buy stuff on eBay occasionally. I'm very careful about who I buy from. And that's really hard for me to say, go to eBay if you don't know, because if you're not expert at spotting fakes, you'll get taken on eBay, for sure. Um, there's a couple of auction sites out of Japan. Mandaraki does their own auctions. Yahoo Japan is basically the eBay of Japan. Um, through most of those services, you'll have to buy by proxy. So you'll have to set up an account with a broker in Japan. It's not that hard. Um, like somebody like Baiyi or, or one of the other brokerage houses. And they will bid on your behalf. And then they, the piece will get sent to their warehouse. And then they'll box all your purchases sent to you. So um, you have a certain amount of time to let them accumulate and then get them all shipped at once. And that keeps your, your postage a lot less. So I think that the other thing... As a, if you want to get into it, if you want to start collecting, I would recommend over eBay, just getting on Google and typing in anime sells for sale. And there will be a few sellers that will pop up. Um, I can say for sure that Anime Link is completely on the level, um, a reputable guy. There are a few other sellers that, that you can kind of check out. But you can also get on Facebook, join anime groups like where you found me, and just ask the community, be like, hey, some reputable people that you know you recommend I buy from. And people ask all the time, and they'll put together lists, and sometimes if it gets really frequent, maybe someone will pin that post and be like, here's our list of approved vendors. Um, in the old days, a lot of collectors were putting their stuff up on a site called Rubber Slug. Um, Rubber Slug, I know for a fact, is on a server in somebody's closet. Um, the guy started, I think, 17 years ago, and he hasn't really done much with it. Um, I know somebody else who's trying to in talks with him to perhaps take that over for him, expand it, and make it a little bit more contemporary because it was set up seemingly with, like, Windows 98. I mean, it's really, really old-looking, but it's kind of charming that it's old-looking. Um, and you get to see people's collections. Um, and you can just kind of trade. You can talk to people, and, and a lot of people who have cells will buy extra cells or they're like people like me where they buy collections and not everything in it is something that they want and so they'll have this other stuff and it's like here's my stuff and here's my sales stuff and you can look and if it's something like oh wow i really like that you know that doesn't seem like yeah. a lot of money and you can you can purchase that i think at this point and as far as like figuring out what your parameters are about how much money you should spend Really, and a, a lot of like old-time collectors will completely disagree with me, but I'm gonna say it anyways. If it's less than a hundred bucks, and you like it, buy it. Like, honestly, like if it's if it's supposedly only worth forty bucks, and you paid a hundred bucks, wait two months in this market. It's gonna get to a hundred bucks. But like well, honestly, I, I want to say this too, because I just recently purchased a sell off of somebody from the Facebook group, and with mm -hmm. him, it was it was actually something under a hundred dollars. But it was uh, a grandma one half cell, and I thought I was just getting the cell by itself. But then he very generously threw in like two uh, gengas in there for me. I was like, "That's amazing!" So I found it's frequent. Yeah, people do yeah. that. 
yeah, everybody seems so in the group, the Facebook group. They're so so generous. And I, you know, I, I've I sold um, a a robot carnival cell to um, a buyer through the Pop Sequentialism site, um, and and someone who had contacted me about some of the Akira stuff before the auction. Great guy. Um, he's he's very. He's now like he's fallen down the rabbit hole with the rest of us. So like he's now like really in it, and he's like, oh, you know, I'm, this is what I want. I'm really specific. And he's there's like a handful of things, and he's like, oh, you've got that other thing I want, and so I'm sure he's like. I think he's a stocks guy and so he's probably like oh i'm up a bit i can buy some more anime and um and so he he purchased one of the robot carnival cells i had now because the um doga was um stapled to the cell as was the case with some of that stuff that came over through um streamline i didn't even say that doga came with it i just included it like i didn't want to advertise it because i'd be disappointed like if I bought something that was advertised as the cell and the doga and they were stuck together or there was like any kind of complication, I'd be very, very upset. And I think rightfully so. But if you get it as a bonus, you're like, oh, wow, that's that's kind of amazing. And like and honestly, like if he wanted to put the work into it, I'm sure he could separate the two without much work. But I didn't want to risk any damage to the um, to the, the doga itself. Like I say, if it's stuck to the back of a, of a cell. I mean, if you don't see it on the clear vinyl, and why would you? Who cares? You know, it's like the the sin of it is that the doga that matches it is now, you'll never have the doga that matches it. Because, you know, at the top of the conversation, you're like an A5 cell. So you have to look and say, okay, does this A5 cell match this A5 doga? Hey, this is it A4 doga? This is it A16 doga? You know, like it's it's not the actual matching cell to doga ratio. Some people don't care if it's close enough. Um, I will specify if they don't match on my listings. It's not super common for people to do that. I think they should. Um, another thing that you want to be careful of is a lot of people just throw a background back of a cell. Like maybe they know it doesn't match or the person who sold to them knew it didn't match. They don't know it doesn't match. and They sell it as a full master setup and you get it. And if you're, and if it's marked, you can say, hey, wait a minute, these don't mark or they're not within sequence. Um, if it's not marked and not all backgrounds are, um, if you're familiar enough, if you try and pull it up on the anime and you're like, hey, wait, this is the cell, but it doesn't seem to match the background, you know, mm -hmm. then it's you feel a little bad about it. But it's also, I think, it does enrich the experience of owning the cell with the painted background. If it's a couple seconds off, I wouldn't sweat it too hard, but I wouldn't sell it as a matching background, and some people do. Yeah, I want to say that too, because the person who sold it to me, there was a background, mm -hmm. and the, he was just telling me, it, like full disclosure, the background is just like a printed one, and it doesn't match. But then I was telling him, it doesn't matter. Like, I love the cell so much, I just, I just want it. It's funny that he gave you a, um, like a print background that doesn't match. That's, that's kind of weird in a, in a way. I mean, it's nice to have something for, to be in front yeah, of Yeah, I would have thought that the print background, he would have printed it to match the exact scene. You might not have had access to and so like one of my okay. one of my akira's has a digital um proof background so this was produced at the animation studio specifically to go with this cell which they knew was going to be either given away or sold an original production cell with an original doga but that background was with another piece so because that you can use the same background on maybe 20 different cells you know if it doesn't change that much and um and so it's an it's interesting because it's an actual clearly like you can't just stop a um 
scene on a DVD and just erase the animation on top of the background, like you'd be printing out the image that's on top with the background. So you would actually have to have access to the original backgrounds to produce a digital background. It was very common with Warner Brothers cells and with Simpson cells when they started making like these edition cells, these giclees, and then just doing like production offerings in the Warner Brothers stores back in the late 90s. Um, and actually, it's funny, a lot of those um, Batman cells that were sold in those Warner stores are starting to go way up in value because people, I think, thought that they were Sarah cells and they're not, they're full production cells with just digital background print. But I mean, might be a handful of painted backgrounds in some of those series. Maybe by like the fourth season, they were going completely digital in the background. So it's, I think it enriches the presentation. Um, it doesn't always enrich the value, but I think it's better to have it to offer it than to not, especially if he's clear about it. You know, it, when you're reselling it, just be clear this is not a matching background, but this is a setup. It's, it's a nice, it's nice to have a sort of ad hoc setup. Yeah. In terms of the timestamps, like getting the matching timestamps to the cells, is that something that adds a level of authenticity towards yard pieces? Is that something Certainly that helps. Okay. Certainly helps. It, you're much less likely. People who do um, excels aren't always good illustrators. Like they can paint. They maybe they can paint in color. They can, they're great with cell vinyl. They might not be good with a pencil. So like it's it's real it's two different people that do it for the movies so it's unlikely to have that same ability to be perfectly good at forging a doga and perfectly good at forging a cell so it's unlikely that you'll find a cell on doga that is bootlegged um the biggest thing that people run into is that studio ghibli did sarah cells they did edition cells that come in these beautiful boxes and they're framed and they come with the ghibli stamp on the back of them and because so many modern buyers didn't realize that these are editions and they thought they were buying original cells. Um, the price on these editions have gone up because of lack of knowledge in the marketplace. And, you know, a smart collector will look and be like, okay, someone's trying to price pass this off as an original just on the price. And a lot of times those will either show up on eBay, sometimes they show up on the Mandarake auctions or the Yahoo Japan auctions. And when you translate the page, the translations do all kinds of craziness and it will tell you something in English, which isn't really an accurate translation of the Japanese. And it gives you a, it, it sort of changes what the intention is of the post. So if you get this thing, it may have been very forthcoming and said in a specific way that this is an edition, this is not original, but the way that it translated, translated it something weird and you want it to be something that it isn't. And so you overpay for it. And then you get it and you, and you either realize it or you don't that you got an addition cell. And it's pretty easy because on the backs of those, they're numbered. That's also official merchandise and it's animation related merchandise. It's a Sarah cell. So it's a, um, a master reproduction cell taken from the original negatives in-house of the film itself and um, presented under authorization by the, um, the producer, the director, um, maybe even frequently a lead animator, always comes with a certificate of authenticity. But what's weird is sometimes those certificates were made for one-of-a-kind art pieces too. So you really kind of have to either know how to read Japanese or have somebody who can translate it um, well when you're bidding in auctions where those types of certificates are presented. Because I've seen manga artists who have made one-off drawings. Like basically, it's just like original manga art. 
which is super rare. Like, getting, like, anything A-list out of the manga world is difficult because a lot of these artists in these these series get museums in Japan, and all the artwork goes to the museum. Like, nothing makes it out. So um, it's super rare for that stuff to, to make it into the open market. So a lot of people are skeptical of immediately of forgeries. But there are handfuls of stuff that make it out. But because there aren't, in all cases, sometimes those creators will make a one-off that they'll put out for a charity, and it comes with that certificate. But if you're used to seeing those certificates in the back of Saracels, it makes it look like it's an addition, and it's really not. So it, that can get very confusing. In, for a new investor, for a new buyer, um, I would say you do want to go for matching cell and matching Doga because it does give you such a higher percentage of it being authentic um, if they're matched. I've occasionally sold cells that don't have the, um, the back Doga um, because I was unable to get them myself when I purchased them when they came with a collection. But because of the collection that they came in, I knew they were authentic. Um, and But by and large, I, I want them to match. I do not purchase anything outright that isn't cell and Doga. I, I need to have them both. And I hate that people separate them. And I get that, you know, some cells are getting very, very expensive and people just want to be able to afford something in the background. And to a greater extent, if someone's going to frame the cell, what do they do with the doga? And so when I was doing that, I created a second window on the back. I could have the doga on the back of the frame. I could take it off the wall and turn it around. You could see both. And the pieces that I dropped off at Heritage, there are three pieces like that. So, um, but... You know, buyer always beware if you don't have a level of expertise. Learn. You know, I think it's it's easy to learn, and you can ask a lot of questions online. Community is very friendly. People will answer your questions. You'll get. You know, every community has. You know, it's like the the kid in the magic show in sixth grade. I know how they did that. There's that everywhere, and there's going to be someone who's going to be you know kind of bratty or snotty about it, or they think they know more than they do. I run across that a lot, and um. I saw something that was on a Yahoo Japan's auction that I was not 100% sure was authentic. And I had someone tell me that, oh, well, if you've seen as many as I have, and I'm thinking, like, you're in France. You haven't seen as many as I have. <laughs> I've literally been at the animation studio, and I've seen them in person. But, um, you know, there's, there's always going to be people like that. And, I mean, I don't want to educate an idiot. You know, I, I'm, if someone's going to come to me and if they've got, like, legitimate concerns and they ask me, respectfully about stuff. I'll be very, very, you know, um, free with my information. I think a lot of people will. But it's like there's a lot of a lot of that kind of, I should say, there's enough of that other kind of energy. Don't let it discourage you. you know, just like block them. You know, go on to the next person who gives you a, a good qualified answer to your question. Read stuff before you immediately ask questions just so, like, you don't run into the, um, the potential of being redundant so that people want to help. And share what you buy. You know, like in a lot of those those um, uh, Facebook groups, and now there's like you know, um, you know, there's TikTok groups. There's every kind of group you can think of. Um, you know, share what you buy. Like people want to see what you're collecting, and they want to ooh and ah. You know, they want to say, oh, that's cool. You know, and and then some people are gonna want to be like, you know, it's like a pissing contest. And well, here's mine. But that that's just cool to see too. You know, like it's it's good to see what's out there. And if you can get people to tell you what they pay, that's great. You know, I feel that everybody on Facebook in these groups has a very undervalued sensibility of what things are selling for. And they're seeing these prices and they're like, oh, that's not worth that. And I'm like, au contraire, market says this is worth that now. 
that doesn't mean that something else that isn't exactly that is like it's two people want that same thing and they bid it up yeah that's what i like about this market is that the pieces are unique that whoever's selling it they can choose wherever they want to sell it at and if not they're just holding in their collection until someone will and with the market going up that someone eventually will more people want to build their collections more people are uh wanting to buy more expensive cells so yeah I, I, i can see that for sure have you ever seen the movie high fidelity i haven't not so it's, a, it's based on a great Nick Hornby novel, and uh, John, they moved it from London to Chicago, and John Cusack plays a record store owner. And his two employees are like Jack Black and Todd Luizzo. And so there's this, this guy, this like record-collecting geek that comes in, and he wants to buy, I think it's like a first pressing of like Captain Beefheart Trout Max, Mask replica or something. And so the guy comes in, he's like taking out, he's looking at it, he's like, okay, how much? And Jack Black's like... Yeah, I changed my mind. I don't want to sell it today. And it's like that kind of like weird collector's not. And the guy's like pissed. You said you were going to sell it. And he runs out of the store. He's like completely frazzled. And there is a certain amount of like, you can choose who you want to sell to. Like, and just like a gallery can. It's like, I want this piece that I've cared for for 20 years to enter a collection. Maybe not necessarily of the best collection of anime, but what paintings does he have? What house is this wall in that he's going to hang it on? Is this like a significant architectural masterpiece that this person lives in? Like, what does their ownership of this mean? And I think that as we start moving further into the NFT marketplace, where you have a full record within the blockchain of who owned it, oh my God, do nerds love that, right? Like, why have we not, like, I can't believe that every NFT that's even marginally related to animation or pop culture hasn't been snatched up by some you know, pop culture collector who just wants their name and the title of ownership. It's like owning the Batmobile, right? Like, and you get that, you get the, the pink slip and you're like, okay, Bruce Wayne owned it first, you know, and now it's like, and now, and I owned it here and now Arnold Schwarzenegger owns it here or whatever, you know, it's like, you become part of the history of the item, the NFT blockchain. And I think that to a lesser extent, if you've been a big caretaker for a particular type of collective, collectible, you want it to go someplace better. Like you don't want it to go down. Like you've held on to it. You want it to go up. You want it to. You want it to be an impressive um, mm-hmm. step up for the piece itself. Without being snobby, certainly I hope without being racist or sexist, but that um, that you want to make sure that pieces are going to the right places. You can't always guarantee that. Maybe that person's going to flip it. Um, and I, I've got no problem with flippers. You know, it's like if they're willing to pay what I've got it marked, power to them. Does that mean I won't discount a piece if someone gives me a really big sob story? Maybe, maybe. You know, like um, I I don't respond well to that type of thing necessarily. But if I know what they have, and it's a little bit less than maybe somebody else who it's not as big a purchase for, I'm very likely to be like that's okay. I'll, I'll sell to this other person. They've got, you know, like four other in sequence and they're, they're working on a whole thing. So they're conceptually invested in really wanting to own this. But if they spend $200 more, their wife or their boyfriend are going to kill them. So like, you know, how do I keep this collector engaged? How do, you know, make them happy? You know, like that's worth something to me, you know, at the end of the day, being a good dude and like, making sure that someone's really, really happy with the purchase. I would much rather have that and have somebody overpay me for it and complain later. And 
Yeah. I've, I've got some stuff that I think it, for a little while was aspirationally priced, and then it wasn't. You know, like all of a sudden, like someone bought my my Eva one and two. I, I had the split sell of Eva one and Eva two. That's like a single moment in the entire Evangelion series. I picked it up um, at an auction in Japan. I think I paid a thousand dollars for it, and someone bought that and that Vegeta cell for me. And I think they paid three thousand dollars for the Evangelion. I was like, whoa. And then I looked, I was like, oh, I'm the cheapest guy in the marketplace now. Like, like in a couple of months, yeah. my high price became the low price. Well, you told me that people are, are in disbelief by how high the prices are. I'm in disbelief that they're not even higher right now. Thank you, you exactly. You need the fine art comparison. People spend millions of dollars on different types of artwork. Uh, this is essentially artwork also, but this was actually used in the production. So it has really a sense of history behind it so i think these things are actually underpriced relative to all kinds of other collectibles whether it's comic books pokemon cards uh other sort of collectibles i think this is really a niche part of the market and it really is artwork and it's a collectible and it's a niche um sort of it's a niche sort of space and it, it's just we're just uncovering it right now and i don't even think we're even in the you know second or third inning of animation cells, I would say, if you're going to use the baseball yeah. analogy. I, I think you're right. Yeah, we're, we're definitely, you know, we're definitely long before the, um, the stretch. Yes. Um, it's, I don't think we've seen the tipping point. I think we saw the beginning of the rise. And I think that's also true of the NFT market. I know NFTs took a big, a big kind of bruising um, a couple, like a month and a half ago. That's going to come back too. And I think, got to look at who's spending the money now like the fine art market the people that were spending 60 and 70 million dollars on warhols were all people 50 to 65 years old you know and some people are buying them for institutions um and now you look at who's spending that money on animation cells happened out around 40 42 yeah um, you're, you're looking at young silicon valley guys you're looking at uh chinese hedge fund managers you're looking at um you know, European um, family, like families of European money, that the younger generation, people want to collect the art that reflects them. Exactly. So for years, people were like, oh man, these, these Silicon Valley guys, they don't buy fine art. And I'm like, who's painting anything for them? You know, like the mm. merchants in Venice had, you know, the greatest painters of the Renaissance painting their portraits in like fancy outfits on walls. That's considered incredibly tacky now. So it's not like, a Silicon Valley programmer wants his portrait painted by some, you know, pop culture painter. They want code. They want the kind of thing that they collected. They want like cause type, you know, unique or limited edition toys. And what I've also found very interesting about the younger buyers is they don't necessarily care if it's unique. They want it to be known. So in addition can be better. You know, it's like people know Banksy, they want Banksy's, but you know, Banksy's not really authenticating. Well, well, who else is there? Well, Cause is making these editions of 10. How much are those? Oh, they're about $10 million each. I'll buy one of those because when everybody comes over, they're going to know it's Cause. And they're going to know how much money yeah. I have. And that's like a weird kind of thing that's also in the market and about why things reflect where they come from and where they go is that there has to be I – don't, I don't think there's a lot of Silicon Valley guys hiring you know, art um, advisors. I think they're like, I like this, I like this, I like this. And if they're people that are in relationships, then the person that they're in a relationship will have some feedback. I hate that. Oh, that's all right. 
you know, and they agree on what they're going to build as collectors together. But, you know, for years it was like, what were Silicon Valley guys spending their money on? They're spending money on cars that they couldn't park in the city, really overpriced real estate, hookers and drugs. And like now it's like people are becoming mature. Um, that kind of broism is being pushed out of tech. And so like the, the people that are in there that are, that are invested in making good money at what they do, who no longer need to live in Silicon Valley or in San Francisco, they can program from Montana. So they can have a much, a much better place for way less money, not having to commute in and out of work in the Bay. And that now they have expendable income. And, you know, and on top of the expendable in income that came with, you know, the, um, the, the refunds from the government and the incentive spending that, that pushed people up, but now people are back to work and they're like, now I'm hooked. I started buying stuff and I want more and, and I want it to reflect who I am and I want it to, yeah. I want it to have a prime position in my house. So like those buyers do want to frame stuff. They don't want a box full of stuff that they stick in the back of the, the closet in, in a good temperature. Like, so the, the people that have been longtime collectors and this happens with everything, right? Like, you know, when Metallica hit number one, like every kid that bought Ride the Lightning as a brand new release because they already knew Kill 'Em All hated those new fans. You know, it's like they couldn't buy tickets at the same price anymore. They couldn't see them in the same small clubs anymore. Oh, now they're going to go after people for trading music. Those guys they didn't care. They bought the records. Did they really care that Metallica were taking a hard line against people sharing their music? Yeah. No, but it was uncool. And so that uncoolness turned into a... a Money goes away, goes into other things. And so, like, I don't think there's any risk of animation being uncool. In fact, it was uncool forever, and now it's becoming cool. So now that lack of resource is being monetized. And so when you see people that are, you know, that are dumbfounded by a Sailor Moon cell selling for $1,200, when it's a beautiful key cell with a specific outfit that completely links it to a single episode, I think it's cheap. I think it's, a, I think it's less than it should be. You well, know, to on, your point. on that, oh, sorry, go, go ahead, finish your point. Oh, that, that's fine. That's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Well, uh, sort of, well, my last question would be just for, uh, to touch back on what you were saying before, would you, for yourself, sell your most prized piece that you have? I have sold my most prized piece. Oh. I've sold my most prized piece many times because it changes. You know, I'm, I'm not who I was in 2000. I'm not who I was in 2010. I'm probably, I, I mean, my weight, I'm not who I was in 2019, but you know, like the, the fact is that we're constantly growing and maturing. We're constantly becoming interested in other things. And I think that I have for very long, um, areas of time dedicated myself to maybe singular minded collections. And I am a guy who, if I find something I like, I go all the way in, like I research it to death and, um, pre-internet that was a lot harder. Now it's a little bit easier. But it's also a lot harder to determine what's real and what isn't. You know, like I did a poster show on films from Toei in late 60s and early 70s. And I was looking online. Now, I'm the guy that brought these films to the U.S. back in the early 2000s. And there will be people who will fight with me over minute details that they can't possibly know, that I absolutely know, on, the, on an online forum. And I'm kind of like, you know, it's, I've done so well avoiding that don't you know who I am, you know, type of thing, which is, you know, you've lost if you have to, if you have to tell them, but it's just kind of like, I'm just going to stay away from this. But I worry that because they're parroting bad information, you know, in a, on an interesting um, parallel to what we're experiencing in the world right now, 
that um, you know that if bad information gets shared, it's damaging to the hobby. It's damaging to what that is. And I finally, you know, got a consensus from some people that these films that were, um, you know, starred women, and even though there was a, a, a lot of salaciousness and a lot of nudity, that ultimately these films were empowering films. And now that's widely accepted, but it certainly wasn't in 2005. You know, it, it's taken 15, 16 years for the truth to kind of come out, you know, while there was other bad information around. And so I think, you know, with animation, like you say, it's like your audience and some of the people you're trying to reach may not know that this is a resource that they have access to, so they're just discovering that. So they're going to go through some topical information. They're going to have to be like, okay, get out that spade, that shovel, and just like flip that dirt up and try and find what's underneath and, and find like the real information. And they will, and they'll know when they read it it's real because they'll see the consensus of the people who are you know, connected to it. Uh, sometimes consensus is wrong too, and that's a whole other story. I think like, you know, I sold a page that I didn't even think I was going to buy. It became my favorite thing. It was a comic book page. And it's a, um, it was a scene from Fox Run on Detective that um, uh, Snyder was writing. And it's the last page. My favorite character, my favorite comic book character is Dick Grayson, the original Robin. Because we're all Robin, man. Like, we're, we're all, like, trying to get out of the shadow of, of our father figure, this Batman. And I'm like, well, you know, Dick Grayson's not a mutant. He's not an alien. Um, he wasn't rich. His parents died. It's like, that could have been me, you know, under less than or a perfectly ideal situation, depending upon how you look at it. Um, and so, like, I think it's a really interesting character. We've seen him grow. He becomes Batman in this series. Uh, they killed off Bruce Wayne for a while in the comics. And so there's this great shot of him, like, doing this leap. Now, he was an acrobat. He came from a family of acrobats. So this shot of Batman is clearly the Dick Grayson Batman, if not the Bruce Wayne. It's a very, you know, kind of wonderful sense of movement. And I had been offered the page because I had just sold some jock stuff in a show, which was a um, the first kind of survey show on modern comic book art. And so I went to drop off the catalogs to some of the guys that helped me put it together. And he, he offered me this page. And I was like, well, I'm really not looking to buy any more comic art. It, the show didn't actually do that well. Um, holy shit, that's amazing. How much is that? You know, it's like, so immediately, like, the collector in me turned on. And, like, the curator was like, okay, he, go do something else, you know, like, mm -hmm. mentally. I need this page. And so I bought it. And it wasn't that expensive. And I just, I loved it. I posted it on like comic art fans, which is a sharing community. And someone offered me some, like a lot of money for it. And I was like, that's a lot, but is it worth me selling it? Because I love it so much because when I let it go, I'll never get it back. Right. Unique things. They go, they do not come back almost never. And I ended up coming to a deal with someone who paid me a fortune for it. And again, four years later, that was now the regular. So, like, while I made a lot of money for it, and I actually kind of needed the money at that moment, um, as it turned out, I was able to put that money towards things that I've also invested in, which will probably pay off better. But the market caught up, so I didn't really, you know, like, was it really worthwhile for me to sell it if it gave me that much joy? And I kind of had to make that decision that it's like I'm on to the next thing. Like, you know, what's the line from uh, Dope Man NWA, don't get high if you're on supply? tough for collectors man it's tough for collectors who sell stuff 
Because you see a good piece and you're like, can make a lot of money off that or I can have the bragging rights. And these days the bragging rights is less to me than my ability to look at it and be like, I love this. And I'm only going to sell this to the person who loves it more than me. And that's kind of what my private stash is these days. It's like, if I find the person who I think deserves it more than I do, I'll sell it to them. And I think that's a great place to leave it off. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, just so everybody can find you, Matt, like where, how can they find you online? Sure. So um, I've got two main um, websites. They're both related. Um, popsequentialism.com and um, gallery30south.com. And it's gallery30south.com are both rela related. They, you, you can reach one through the other. Popsequentialism is mainly the animation, comic artwork, but also graded comics and collectibles. And Gallery 30 South is more the fine art type of thing. And you can see behind me, I've got some key pieces. Like this piece right here is Chuck D from Public Enemies drawing of the cover of Nation to Millions to hold us back. So I gave Chuck D his very first art exhibition. So I, I work in pop culture as fine art with my art gallery as much as I deal in pop culture and, and the items and totems and collectibles with, with pop sequentialism. But those are the two places where I'm easiest to find. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Matt. Really appreciate Pleasure. it. Pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Matt. Thanks a lot. Nice talking to you.